thing that makes the average citizen puke and look at the system and say, yeah, you know, what's going on? I don't know anything about this man except I've read bad stuff about him. And uh, I, I don't I don't like, you know, I don't like what I read about him. We are more than just one coin. We create the world around this coin. Come. Invention. Come. Come. The evil has gone. Hey everyone, welcome to Grubstakers, the podcast about billionaires. Today I'm joined by my wonderful co-hosts. Andy Palmer. Sean P. McCarthy. Steve Jeffers. And today we're going to be talking about the affectionately known avocado Gianni Agnelli, a man who was born into a life of luxury and as he lost family members closest to him, he would live a life of excess that would come to define Italian excellence. Gianni and Gianni would become the quintessential idea of what it meant to have Italian style, an international playboy, a daredevil in his own right, and a man who would never emotionally heal from his losses in childhood and how it would eventually be his own undoing by the end of his life. You make it sound like he's Batman. I mean, <laughs> I do think that for a period he definitely lived a Batman-esque life. He's Bruce Wayne. Oh, I was just going to say, like, losses during childhood. <laughs> well, he, he, you know, we'll, we'll talk about it more in this episode, but I think, first of all, like, did you guys even know that uh, the, this family existed? Well, uh, no, but I do think that it's important in this time when all these Christopher Columbus statues are getting pulled down that we celebrate uh, Italian excellence. <laughs> <laughs> I will say that uh, that print run they did where Batman commits war crimes on the Eastern Front was very unpopular. <laughs> And uh, a guinea Batman committing war crimes on the Eastern <laughs> Front was not well received, but, you know, in posterity it holds up. Hey, Joker, I'm Batman over here. <laughs> uh, yes, he definitely lived a life that I think that uh, as I watched the HBO documentary on Yeni about his life, I certainly felt both uh, envious and then uh, not so envious by the end of it of what this man's life would become. Um, to give everyone an overview of the family themselves, uh, this is from Wikipedia. The Agnelli family is a Italian multi-industry business dynasty founded by Giovanni Agnelli, the uh, grandfather of the individual we're covering today, one of the original founders of Fiat Motor Company, which became Italy's largest manufacturer. Fabrica Italiana Automobile Torino. They are also primarily known for other activities in the automotive industry by investing in Ferrari, Lancia, Alfa Romeo, and Chrysler. The latter acquired by Fiat after it filed for bankruptcy in 2009. The Agnelli family is also known for managing and being majority owners of the Italian Series A football club Juventus FC. Since the club's conversion to a public limited company in 1967, most members of the family are stakeholders in privately owned Giovanni Agnelli BV, incorporated in the Netherlands for tax purposes, which only happened within the last 10 years, which in turn has a controlling stake in the publicly listed holding company, Exor. Um, they are rumored to having around 11 to $13 billion. Um, no one really knows how much money they have, actually. I mean, they, they, they certainly have all those companies, but the amount of money the entire empire has is not necessarily known. Uh, Steven, you looked into Exor, their financial arm? Yeah, so 
Exor is privately held by Giovanni Agnelli BV. Um, it's among the largest such privately held groups in the world in terms of gross revenue. It's the 24th largest in the world. Hmm. And it has revenue of $144 billion. Hmm. As total assets of 172.6 billion as of 2019, um, they own stakes. Some of their major stakes that they hold are the Economist Group, the Economist Mag- Magazine. They oh. own 43.4 percent share and 20 percent of the voting rights. They also own well Fiat Chrysler automobiles, which we'll get into. Obviously. So they must have made a lot of money off their share of the Economist magazine when coronavirus caused toilet paper shortages <laughs> throughout the nation. <laughs> They've been raking it in with all of the the hot takes about um like how will, how will COVID how will COVID change IT workplaces or something. <laughs> um, they uh, COVID nineteen is at a crossroads. <laughs> So they this Exor also is the group that holds Juventus FC, the Italian soccer team. Mm-hmm. They have a sixty three percent share of that. They also own a string of like transportation and healthcare and pharmaceutical companies. One such company is called Via Transportation Inc. It's an American transportation network company that does like real time ride sharing hmm. in cities like New York City and Chicago. What's that called? Via. Oh, they own a part of Via. Interesting. Hmm. Oh, they oh, they okay. do own Via. There's also a company called TrueLink. Yeah, that was Via Transportation. And then gotcha. there's another company called TrueLink, which is a financial services firm that got quite a bit of venture capital money from Silicon Valley. Well, Via's uh, one of those rideshare companies that did the thing that every other rideshare company did, which is we're slightly better than Uber, so you should support <laughs> us. Yeah. Yeah, it was... So, yeah, they invested in Via as sort of like when it was known as like the woke alternative to yeah, Uber. Yeah. So in terms of ride-sharing, they're like the closest to what I think everyone wants in, in the form of like a worker-controlled app. <laughs> Side note, I don't, I don't know why taxi drivers don't just pool money to have to develop their own app oh yeah i mean like curb exists but even that is like uh wrapped in red tape uh with the tlc in uh, new york and in other cities as well i don't know why i mean like you know it's frustrating i remember when i first moved to new york and lyft and uber at the time were banned and then like within a year or two uh, at first, it was like they're only going to allow a thousand people to drive Uber, and then very quickly it was like, actually, no, that's going to be however many as it want, and it really kind of gutted the entire industry from the taxi medallions going from selling, you know, nine hundred thousand to a million dollars to just crashing immediately. Yeah, so Via is a part of why that there was a crash in the medallion market. Um, but to f- for some recent news for Exor, they they had put in a bid to buy the reinsurance company partner Ray um, for $140 a share. And it was about to go through at about for about $9 billion. Mm-hmm. Um, that fell through recently, and their stock price took quite a hit from that. So they've had some like few tales of woe like that recently in the last three years. Hmm. I believe we'll get into their CEO, John Philip Elkin. Yes. This is the one of the grandchildren of uh, Gianni Angeli. 
and gin right. and yelling. I'm going to uh, wholeheartedly admit I'm going to mispronounce many Italian names during this episode. So <laughs> it's finally time for the brown guy in the show to mispronounce white names. <laughs> right. No, these are Italian names, Yogi. Yeah, yeah. well, they're, they're close enough to me, if you know what I mean. Mm-hmm. I think I think to soften the blow, you should do it in a wildly offensive accent. <laughs> <laughs> Let's see. Andrea Agnelli is a director on the board for XOR. Right. Uh, he is also the head of Juventus. And I know that uh, many of our soccer fans will be disappointed that we're not going to cover Juventus that much during this episode because... I don't know, soccer sucks, and we're Americans. No, I'm just kidding. But like it, this episode had a lot to uh, deal with in terms of Fiat and uh, later on Gaddafi, as well as uh, several other mob connections that we're going to be talking about on this episode. No, yeah, there, there's a reason why whenever we cover, or most of the time when we cover someone like uh, with sports connections, we bring in a guest who actually uh, understands like the politics of sports. Because <laughs> whenever we try to talk about it on our own, we're like, I don't know. There's like a player and they didn't pay him well, I think. Um, the team seems to be not good. No, there there's, there, definitely is a mob connection. It's, and it's not too convoluted, but you know, we'll get into that. It's with Juventus in 2014. Um, some of their senior management, including Agnelli, were investigated by a uh, prosecutor's office in Turin on the management of tickets at one of their stadiums. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah. So we're not going to cover the uh, their promotion where they gave the first ten thousand fans a banana to throw at the foreign <laughs> players. <laughs> In twenty fourteen, some of Juventus's senior management, including Agnelli, were investigated by a justice office in Turin on the management of tickets at their Juventus stadium about the alleged infiltration of the Negron Geta, or southern branch of the mafia, in the commercial management of the company's, like, ticket ticket booth. Negron Geta, or however you pronounce it, I'm sure we're fucking it up, but they're the, the mafia that controls Calabria, which is the, pro- the province on the southernmost tip of Italy, whereas La Cosa Nostra, this is the most famous one, they control Sicily, the island off the southern tip of Italy. Okay. But people, a lot of people say that La Cosa Nostra has been overtaken by these mobsters in Calabria, and they are actually, uh, by a lot of uh, different estimates, the most powerful organized crime force in, in Europe. Also, fascinating tidbit, uh, La Cosa Nostra, it means uh, the thing of, or it, it means um, the our thing, which doesn't make any sense, and the reason people call it that is it's really just Cosa Nostra, but... Uh, J. Edgar Hoover was a dumbass, and when the um, FBI was looking into it, he just pushed that name. <laughs> he just liked that sound. Yeah, <laughs> Hoover sucked. So, like, it was it was alleged that they're using the ticket offices to launder money or uh, derive some inc- like passive income for the mob hmm. through those booths. Interesting. Well, but yeah, to to pull back a bit, the Agnelli family. Uh, really obviously has been so plugged into Italian politics for more than 100 years now, Mm -hmm. you have to imagine that they have always had these connections with both the mafia and the political class. Because, you know, we talk about Fiat that was first founded in like 1899, and then they're plugged into the Mussolini government. And then, you know, by the 80s, they're like a power within themselves in the Italian state. And we'll get to all that. But, you know, mafia connections, political bribery, none of this stuff should 
should surprise you when it comes to one of the most powerful uh, billionaire Italian families. Mm-hmm. So on March 18th, 2017, following a investigation and opening up a lawsuit by one of the prosecutors, Agnelli was referred by the attorney general along with the other three club executives for a trial. So following that in September, um, the attorney general reformulated its allegations, excluding a presumed mafia association with the members of the incriminated club Mm. after the prosecutor Giuseppe Porcaro's intervention to the anti-mafia commission in April. So the prosecutor was asked for sanctions for the meetings of Agnelli with um, so-called ultra groups and the sale of the tickets by the rest of the offenders beyond the limit allowed for one person. So it's our, otherwise it's an avenue for ticket scalping, which they're more strict on in Italy. Right. Mm-hmm. On the 25th of September, Agnelli was banned for one year and fined 20,000 euros, wow. while Juventus were fined 300,000 euros for selling tickets to these ultra groups, which uh, I don't know quite the, what these groups are, but it sounds like they are just like a, like a hidden tier of um, stadium goers who get special privileges that we don't. And there are a few other grandkids to Gianni's and Jelly's empire that are the current heirs to the dynasty. The main ones are John Elkin, who was given the golden keys to the fiat empire just before Gianni's death. Lapo Elkin, who has battled drug addiction. Uh, He's been involved in a handful of sex scandals and now designs sunglasses and cars. He's a major chode. He kind of has... I don't know the actor's name, but in the first Spider-Man, the Green Goblin, he sounds like that guy. He, I don't know what's going on with him, but <laughs> motherfuckers lived a weird life. And their sister, Ginevra, who is a director and artist who manages the Angeli Museum in Turid, the home base for Fiat and Angelis, uh, and the Angelis. And they have a cousin, Andrea, Andrea Angeli, who runs the Luvanta soccer, as Steven was just talking about. Um, so this multi-billion dollar family was solidified as a family unit, except that after Gianni Angeli's death, where his only living daughter, Margarita, began to question the evaluation of her father's net worth. This is from the Vanity Fair piece, The Woman Who Wanted the Secrets. Uh, Margarita Agnelli de de Palen, the daughter of Gianni Angeli, was skeptical when her father's will at first was read without her present, the bulk of shares from her mother, Gianni's wife, were given to Margarita's son, their grandson, John, which then would nullify any of Margarita's other children from her second marriage. So, essentially what was going on there was Gianni Angeli's daughter had two marriages, and from her first marriage, John was chosen to run the Fiat Empire. But the second marriage, she had five other kids from that as well, and they, in what happened between the will and Margarita's mother giving her shares to John, was that those five kids were screwed out of their inheritance. Um, this is going back to the Vandy Fair piece, because I think that a lot of this, these mysterious deaths that happened in the Angeli family were mob-related somewhat. Uh, this is a story from 
the Vandy Fair piece I'm referring to, uh, the marriage between Sergei de Paulin and Margarita was in 1985. She would convert to Orthodox Christianity to marry Sergei. From the same ver- ver- from the same Variety Fair piece, after her marriage, she continued to live a life apart from that world, including a 92 vacation in uh, Dhaka, a wooden country house in the wilds of Russia which ended tragically. One morning before dawn, the couple awoke to find the Dhaka in flames. Sergei smashed the living room window with a chair, and they literally threw their five children out to safety. When Margarita attempted to save their dog, however, her hair and clothing caught fire. Sergei was unable to reach the room where two of the children of the family that had accompanied them on the vacation were sleeping, and they perished in the fire. You can imagine our anguish, this burden on our souls, Margarita told a reporter after she had driven six hours in a minivan to Moscow, where her father sent his jet to fly her to Paris. With burns on 18% of her body, she endured months of surgery and skin grafts. So, uh, this is one of many random occurrences where members of the Anjani family would be uh, injured and killed. Um, Another one being... Uh, Gianni Anjani's son, Eduardo, who was named after his grandfather, who would commit suicide from jumping off a 200 feet tall tower. Um, in the documentary on HBO, Anjani basically says, like, you know, I didn't give any faith into my son, but jumping off of that tower required a lot of courage. And so, like, maybe that's what he was trying to prove. And it's like, I don't, I don't fucking know, man. But, like, that doesn't seem like it. In articles online, they talk about how Eduardo, his son, would uh, convert to Islam. And, uh, like, they think that that was somehow... Basically, anyone that converts to a different religion in this family ends up dead or about to be dead in certain cases. So, I, I don't know exactly what's going on, but it's got to be some sort of mob relation. Well, at least, at least they've got a better afterlife. <laughs> We're going to begin the story of the Angeli family, and it begins with Giovanni Angeli, the first patriarch and the founder of Fiat. The, he was born in 1866. He would attend military school at Modena, but he quit the army in 1892. In 1899, he was one of the prime movers. Italian military school is definitely the easiest. (laughs) Oh, shit, I'm late for my 7 o'clock surrender class. (laughs) I didn't get my espresso today. I can't focus in class, bro. Um, Bro, bro, can you teach me how to to make a white flag? I've got a (laughs) test on this at at 5 (laughs) o'clock. How to to make some sort of white flag to surrender immediately. Uh, He... (laughs) How do we how do we fuck up holding these flanking positions <laughs> and allow the German army to be encircled at Stalingrad? What's the most efficient way of of getting drunk when we're supposed to be watching the flanks? Uh, he would uh, be the prime movers in creating Fiat, which soon became a, an internationally renowned automobile manufacturer. Uh, during World War One, Fiat ran its huge turret plants at full speed, supplying the Italian military forces with armaments. The company employed a workforce of more than 30,000 in the production of streetcars, airplanes, railroad cars, tractors, and diesel engines. Yeah, just uh, following up on that, there, there's a piece in The Guardian by uh, Neil Asherson um, that was written right around the time Eduardo committed suicide, and they have, uh, or he writes a basic biography of uh, Giovanni, which everything Yogi just said there is correct. Uh, he was a Piedmontese cavalry officer. But uh, the way this guy tells it is that in 1899, 
as like a military officer, he met some various people uh, with uh, noble titles in Italian society, so some kind of minor royalty and nobles and such. Uh, he met these people, and they went in with him, and they all started building cars in 1899. And then um, just one other thing from that article. Apparently in 1908, he was in Italian court for cooking the books. So already oh, really? by 1908, he's... Uh, <laughs> uh, you know, doing some shady finances. But, uh, yeah, again, like Yogi says, basically he becomes rich during World War One because they need all these uh, cars and uh, trucks to transport military supplies for the Italian army. In uh, another article I found that after World War One he was ousted, but then em- oh, em- employees at the factories would come back to him and be like, hey, man, come back to the company after your involvement with the First World War. Uh, something similar would happen after the Second World War, but uh, he would be ousted by anti-fascists and uh, then not return ever again. And mm. uh, the way the documentary pa- paints it is he like died of a broken heart because the factory he helped built wouldn't allow <laughs> him to go back to the factory, as well as like during his funeral procession, they asked if they could stop in front of the Fiat factory, and the Fiat employee said, nah, we good. <laughs> He he died of a broken heart because he said, if only I could have made that car faster, my friend Mussolini would still be alive today. (laughs) From the Guardian article that I just mentioned there is they say all the way back in 1914, Giovanni Ignani um, recognized Benito Mussolini as a political figure worth investing in and supporting. So all the way back in 1914, like right at the breakout of World War I, he was already kind of cultivating Mussolini to take over Italy. And got in early. Mm-hmm. And that was probably when he was still a communist. Right. Damn. He got so, in at the ground the ground floor. Sort of sort of making me uh doubt Mussolini's leftist bona fides there. <laughs> <laughs> so Giovanni Engeni, the man we've been talking about right now, the the individual that started the factories, would have a son named Eduardo. And Eduardo and his wife... Oh, by the way, uh, all of this uh, story about this Italian empire is rife with women being completely ignored of their existence. Uh, Everything from wives to daughters could never play a role in the business uh, acumen of of the companies that that were uh, connected to the Agnani family. And, like, you know, sure, uh, this is what how society has been for hundreds of years. But um, I remember when I was watching the Amanda Knox documentary... Uh, the amount of uh, just blatant a woman couldn't uh, a woman would lie about these crimes and a woman like her is not to be trusted sexism that came out about during that was was pretty blatant in terms of like oh uh, Italian culture not unlike most cultures but definitely has a huge strain of sexism a, a part of it I, I was going to say yeah that this is a shocking misogyny from uh, the Italians <laughs> yeah right exactly so uh, Gianni and Jenny has a one. Imagine Amanda Knox's defense was like a woman couldn't wield a knife. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I, At least not. <laughs> she was outside of the kitchen. The murder was in the living room. Uh, her appointed her appointed Italian defen- defender is just like yeah. it's just look. Is a cite uh, like an old law that says like yeah. I mean it's not it's not possible. <laughs> Yeah, like, I remember watching that, and, like, I think it was, like, the judges in the Knox case were just, like, 
doesn't anyone realize women lie? That's what she's doing here. She is lying. Like, I don't, I don't know <laughs> if it was like the translation was poor or if just that's the level of bullshittery that they were trying to pull on a Knox in that moment. Um, so, uh, from most of my research on Gianni now, it's going to be coming from the 2017 HBO documentary on Gianni. Uh, Gianni and Angeli had one brother, Umberto, and five sisters uh, to maintain the blatant sexism from uh, this family. I'm going to make sure to not mention any of the females' names. (laughs) There's just too many names, guys, all right? I'm I'm, I'm not trying to be a sexist, (laughs) but I couldn't remember all of them or write them down when they came on the screen. So, as a kid, he (laughs) was mischievous. He liked driving fast cars, and he liked, you know, trying to to have sex with women. Uh, He was a promiscuous kid, according to his sisters and his family. His mother, Donna Virginia Bourbon Del Monte, had a leopard as a pet. Uh, this was the first time in this documentary where they had, like, a hard edit. Like, I don't know exactly what they're trying to cut out, but I'm sure the Onyeni family had a hand in what was able to be said and not. Because several times during this film, there's, like, a hard cut with people talking. Um, his mom was promiscuous, which was uh, uh, controversial for the time. As Eduardo was an arts man, he was in theater, uh, he liked literature. He was more of an intellectual, which is also insulted immensely in this movie. His father, Eduardo, uh, the son to Giovanni Agnani and the dad to uh, Gianni Agnani, died while flying in a seaplane. He would be decapitated by the propeller of the plane as it hit a log that was floating in the water. Um, He would have to be identified by his senator father. And when this happened, uh, Gianni was around 12 years old. And he, his grandfather, Giovanni, would look at Gianni and say, like, all right, you're going to run the Fiat factory one day. So from the age of 12, Gianni was being groomed to run the Fiat empire. So Gianni would visit the United States in 1938. He would see the Ford plant in Detroit. He would visit New York, and he loved the United States. He bought the American dream. Compared to Italy, the United States was fucking awesome. Um, after this, he would go to war and he tells a story about how he went to war with mixed feelings. His grandfather tried to stop Gianni as he was like, he quit military school. But Gianni was like, fuck Russia, I'm going to go into the military. Um, he would say that it was a very sad experience. A lot of my friends died. Uh, years later, uh, uh, from another article I found, there was a story where Gianni would tell that in Tripoli, Libya, during the war, a German soldier, he said, was sitting in a bar for officers in the company of a Levantine beauty. The couple was approached by a young Italian officer who began flirting with the woman. The German was polite, up to a point. After all, they were allies. But when the Italian gently put his arm around the lady of the night, the German, without saying a word, discreetly took out his sidearm and shot the young Italian through the foot. All three remained seated, and with all the noise and merriment, no one realized that a shot had been fired. After a minute or two, the Italian excused himself and smilingly retired. That's what I call style, said Lavacato. The German never raised his voice or made a scene in public. Years later, I found out that Gianni had been the Italian who had been shot. If anyone had shown more style than the German, it was Gianni. So, you know, it's a fucking bullshit story of where Gianni was hitting on some woman and a German shot him in the foot. And he was like, "Ah, I'm going to get out of here. Yeah, that sounds like a made up story to cover up the time that he uh, turned over Jewish partisans with Rommel's African (laughs) Corps and got them deported to Auschwitz. Yeah, Yeah, most likely. 
Um, uh, yeah, apparently, like, he was on the Eastern Front as an Italian soldier. He was wounded twice on the Eastern Front, and then he was in uh, in Libya correct. with the Italians and, uh, and Rommel on the other side. Yeah, I, I mean, you know, one thing I want to make clear on this episode is that I'm, you know, this family owned a couple of newspapers. So in terms of what information was out about them has been relatively scrubbed. I mean, everything about right. the Anjani family glorifies them as the Italian icons as they seem to want to portray themselves as. Now, I, I read on uh, Reddit that Rama was a pretty good guy and uh, actually he uh, <laughs> he was he was the good Nazi. That's um that's uh, what they said over there. <laughs> on, I was on Reddit. Uh, reading Rommel's Wikipedia. Apparently, he would... Like, he seemed like, you know, whatever you think of his military prowess, maybe he was disassociating, maybe he was simple-minded, but apparently he made regular suggestions that Hitler appoint a Jewish uh, Nazi party leader to uh, manage a province. Hmm. Like... <laughs> Like you're not really getting this whole Nazism <laughs> thing, buddy, are you? That's that's a big Joe Biden energy or like congressional <laughs> Democrat energy. It's, it's a, uh, a woke Nazi. Yeah, yeah. He wants to have a Jewish state within the Nazi empire. In 1945, Turin uh, was destroyed, the Italian town that they're from, and his mother would die in a car accident. She broke her neck. Um, at after the war his grandfather Giovanni Agnani was accused of being a collaborator with uh the the Axis right yes the Axis yeah and yep. no uh, ba so no basis to that allegation <laughs> whatsoever <laughs> so the anti-fascist said you got to roll the fuck out and uh like i mentioned earlier like uh he would <laughs> the movie would make it so that he died of a broken heart uh mm. he would be <laughs> exonerated uh, but he he he's, he didn't give a fuck. He he lost his will to live after after this incident. So, I mean, you know, G from Gianni's perspective, though, at this point, his they are like your grandfather's a fucking uh, fascist collaborator. Your parents are dead, and you suck. So his his entire ethos at this point is like, I'm gonna fucking be awesome. And so, at this time. He, Do you it, think he was thinking about doing war crimes on the Eastern Front when he was fucking Jackie Kennedy? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, maybe. Do, do you think that popped into his I head? I think so. I think when he was pop when having sex with, Ken with Kennedy, he was like, you know what? I should have committed more crimes. I would have gotten away with it. Um, at this point, he after the war, uh, the Allies were going to take over, take fiat from the Italians. And according to the documentary, Gianni convinced the Americans that the f the Fiat factory should be in Italians. I mean, I, th I feel like he was just kind of like, "Hey, you don't you don't want us? Just go home, man." And so the basically at this point on, on Gianni and the Fiat Empire would be loyal to the United States, and that comes from Gianni visiting uh, the United States when he was younger. But also, I think he was just like, "I collaborate with the winners," and in this case, it's the Allies. Hmm. Um, at this point. Uh, one of the heads, Vittorio Valletta, he lived for the company. He said, uh, Gianni, sorry, Vic at this point, Gianni was still too young to run Fiat, and Vittorio Valletta, he lived for the company. And so what would happen is that Gianni's war friends, because we're just like, dude, we just want to get drunk and have fun, and so his grandfather was like, go do that, and then when you're ready, you can come run the Fiat Empire. 
and I it was basically a handshake deal between Valletta and Agnani, but I'm surprised that, you know, after this time period that I'm about to mention that the Fiat uh, Empire would go back to Gianni because after this, Gianni would spend his time around the richest Europeans, just chilling with the richest people, doing coke, smoking dope, and just fucking women. That's all he did. When he would, he first moved to France and bought a house for a hundred thousand dollars, and just fucking hung out for about twenty years, just fucking pounding puss and living a great life. Now, I will argue this in terms of advertising for Fiat, priceless, because you got to imagine the rich people in Europe at this time are all kind of like boring, old, hardened dudes for the most part. I mean, sure, there's princes and princesses who are like you know young, but like they don't have all the time in the world to do whatever the fuck they want. Gianni was just wild. This is a man who apparently would jump out of his helicopter into the Mediterranean Sea. Like, he just lived life balls to the walls. A quote of his that is celebrated is, uh, ladies should be treated like tarts, and tarts should be treated like ladies. Tarts is a word for prostitute, if uh, you don't know, listeners. Um... Oh, also, this person would be a very good friend of Henry Kissinger. During the HBO <laughs> documentary, there would be a handful of Kissinger quotes. Uh, first one being, the man drove like a madman. <laughs> uh, Kissinger hated ride, driving with uh, Gianni. Um, yeah, they were they were both uh, were members of the Bilderberg Group, which, you know, don't draw anything nefarious <laughs> from that. No, no along conclusions with, uh, there. Along with Rockefeller. But yeah, no, um, Gianni's nickname was, quote, the Rake of the Riviera. Uh, And as Yogi was saying, he spent from 1945 to he takes over the company in 1966. He spent 20 some years being a playboy, uh, hooking up with a bunch of actresses of the day, as well as allegedly Jackie Kennedy. Yes. And this time being post-World War, uh, a very prosperous time for Italy itself. And around 1954, I believe, he would be given a million dollars a year allowance. And, like, man, like, no billionaires are doing it right at all. But in terms of, like, I just get to do what the fuck I want, you know the, like, Richard Branson, like, mid-Atlantic accented pieces of shits? They all want to be this guy, which is Mm. a guy that just fucking drives boats, fucking drives cars as fast as he wants, just lives life balls to the walls. But I will say that, um, you know, in terms of his mom owning a leopard and being a bit of a promiscuous woman, there is an air of uh, perfectionism in a handful of these billionaires, similar to like Elon Musk and others, where they just want everything to look perfect, but... And no point is the books or how much money he was spending or how much money was coming in and out by Gianni ever even in consideration. There's a huge aspect of billionaires that is like, it just got to look good. And uh, it's poison, really. It's I think it's like a maybe they have like an insecurity that possibly um, they didn't earn their massive wealth and place in the world. And, uh, you know, if they turn out a shitty product, people might catch on. Um, but of course that's just an insecurity and has no basis in reality. <laughs> I mean, definitely. Yeah, but, but think about if, if you had a million dollar a year allowance, what you could do with that. Like I could almost meet my desired level of magic, the gathering card spending <laughs> with, with that kind of money. <laughs> Black Lotus or, yes. or two every year. 
I don't know how much they're worth. Uh, several, several thousand now. Okay. Well, you'd be set there. No. But I, you'd be giving that much money, Shawnee. You'd blow it on more magic cards. I'm telling you, man. A million dollars ain't nearly as much as you want it to be when it goes by year after year. Hmm. Well, like the, the cost of a good red deck is probably not what it used to be. Just like Jackie Kennedy walking by, and I'm like, no, no, get out of the way. I'm looking at this Power <laughs> 9 over here. <laughs> like, <laughs> get, get out of the way. I'm trying to see the Mox Emerald. Um, so at this time, the documentary talks about... Uh, oh, go on, Sean. Uh, I did want to back up just, just a little bit um, when we talk about, you know, the Americans and the Allies after World War I, World War II letting him keep the company. Um, uh, I really recommend this book, Savage Continent. Uh, they talk a lot about what happened in, um, in Europe after World War II. Um, and part of that was in Italy, obviously... The Americans, the British, were they ran the entire country. They had the armed forces there. They got to decide what what would happen, and so of course, you know, under twenty years of fascism, a lot of resentments build up in Italy, um, and so there was a very strong communist party that m- probably wouldn't have actually been able to win the elections outright, but they would have definitely won, you know, local elections, governorships, probably have support from a quarter of the country or so. And they were, to various degrees, with the uh, consent of the Allies, violently suppressed. There were several, um, in the wake of the fall of Mussolini, there were several peasant uprisings, several local land redistributions, Mm. where these landlords, who had, of course, cooperated with the fascists, uh, their tenants basically just redistributed their land themselves. And then, of course, the Americans and the Brits consented to allowing uh these local landlords to round up forces and violently massacre these uh farmers and other tenants who had attempted land redistribution so uh, i guess what i'm what i'm getting at here is that his power was part of the larger allied project to prevent a communist takeover in uh, france italy all these other countries by supporting business elements and uh former fascist elements of uh the government of italy and Backing up even more, uh, his grandfather Giovanni, I did just want to mention, you know, we talked about Mussolini and how he uh, realized this guy was a prospect all the way back in 1914. Apparently at the Fiat factories, they had, uh, in 1921, they had uh, some really, like, violent and intense labor militancy, you know, union activity. Mm -hmm. And uh, then uh, Mussolini comes to power, and that all stops for some reason. (laughs) so, you know, this is a family that was plugged directly into Mussolini's fascist government and then was able to assert to the allies who took over after, like, hey, we'll we'll keep the communists out. Just let us keep running shit. So the documentary doesn't say this outright, but Gianni loved eating butt. No, I'm just kidding around. But I will say that at one point, uh, Pamela Churchill would get a divorce uh, to Randolph Churchill, the son of the prime minister. He was apparently a drunk, and... Pamela Churchill was like, I want that Gianni. Winston Churchill's son, a drunk? <laughs> yeah, Knock pa- me over with a feather. Pamela Ch- Churchill was like, I'm trying to get that Onyeni fucking dick. And so they were using each other. She would teach him the world of politics, and he'd teach her the language of analingus. Um, but he would buy her a flat in Paris. He'd get her a Bentley, a chauffeur. He gave her the world. She would convert to Catholicism to try and appease his sisters. But her sisters were like, nah, you got a divorce. We don't play that game, right? And so Gianni would stay a gigolo. He uh, got 
caught having sex with Anne-Marie de Stanville by Pamela, and according to the doc, she threw something at them. And after this, Gianni and this floozy rolled out. And supposedly, he was on coke, and he would drive like a madman as it was. He would call this period the Great White Nights. And according to the documentary, he crashed into a butcher truck and fucked up his leg, causing seven fractures in his leg. This would cause him to have to stay in the hospital from two to nine months. He was on painkillers this entire time. And his sisters were like, nah, Pamela's a snake. We're going to hook this guy up with someone else. But I would argue that Winston Churchill's daughter finds out that the dude she's trying to fuck is cheating on her. And, you know, this man that would drive like a man, madman constantly, would never run into no butcher truck. No, the Churchill got some bodyguards to beat the shit out of his leg, and then he's in a hospital. He's like, yeah, I got into a car accident because he's keeping his mouth shut on this. I can't, cl- I can't confirm any of this information, but it is just very odd to me that this man that lived a life, you know, as a you know, self-described ma- madman, daredevil, would get into a car accident, and the person he's with wouldn't be injured at all at driving 125 miles into the back of a truck in this time mm. period. Yeah, like that 100, they were driving 120 miles an hour, supposedly, mm-hmm. which is like, he was like, all right, what's what's a number I can make up that I look cool <laughs> in this story? <laughs> no, 100's not enough. It's got to be more. Right. Like, he, he would look like fucking spaghetti sauce. Yeah. He would look like his nightly dinner had he actually been going 120 <laughs> miles an hour. And I mean, at the, if you look at pictures of him at the time, he does look exactly like that um, survive a car accident body guy <laughs> see online. Yeah, uh, it was uh, he, w- he wasn't taking care of himself, but he managed to survive the accident. I just feel like the fact that the person he was with wasn't injured at all and he broke a leg is so suspect to me. And I mean... Hmm. Like, if a person I was with was cheating on me and I had the power to have that motherfucker's leg broke in seven places, yeah, I think that's <laughs> that's the, that's a fair revenge, if you know what I mean. Sean, you got another uh, tidbit on Mussolini? Well, just one other thing from uh, Gianni's childhood is apparently, like, just uh, from the Guardian article I was quoting from earlier, uh, we mentioned uh, Giovanni, the grandfather, his son, Eduardo, dies, gets beheaded by the seaplane. Apparently, his widow, Virginia, embarked on an affair with, like, an an Italian writer. Mm -hmm. And uh, Giovanni, again, the grandfather, responded by kidnapping her children, including Guiana. Uh, And this dispute went on until Mussolini intervened personally (laughs) to uh, end this this kidnapping. Yes. Um, So, yeah. What a statesman. (laughs) The HBO documentary did not go into that. That's fucking great, Sean. Mussolini shows up and he's like, sorry, I would have been here sooner, but the trains were late. (laughs) (laughs) So Gianni's sisters were like, fuck Pamela Churchill. There's this princess named um, Maria. She's a royal. She's been wanting to fuck Gianni for five years. Let's get her to marry Gianni. And so she went to see him in the hospital bed in Florence, and she would get married to Gianni in 1953 in France, in Strasbourg. Uh, the Mariah, the Maria family wasn't into it because Gianni was a fucking playboy and he like loved fucking women all, all around the, the continent. And so their royal upbringing was like, we can't trust this person. But when they first got married, Maria would read poetry and sleep all day. <laughs> 
This is from the documentary. Nice. And Gianni was like, fuck that noise. And so he forced her to go to a location to like learn how to be a wife. And the documentary <laughs> describes it as like she dealt with that witch for two to three months and then came back and understood that she not only has to love her husband, but also has to be a wife now. Oh, my God. She sounded awesome before all that. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you marry a billionaire or you just you know, want to sleep. Who, you marry a wildly rich guy. That's that sounds like what you would do. And then it sounds like they sent her to a torture camp. Mm hmm. Mm-hmm. Like Italian, how to be a wife school is one of the maybe most horrifying sentences. <laughs> yeah, so this, they made uh, she was extremely cool, and then they said, "Oh, we 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 can't have this." Right, exactly. Yeah. So they would have uh, uh, Eduardo and uh, Margarita, and you know, from the doc's perspective, it's like Gianni stopped being a wild person. He became a family man. He bought this house that was in the movie Red Shoes, this giant estate in Italy. And Gianni and his wife would just throw parties and everyone wanted to come in from the Kennedys to Kissinger to royals all around uh, Europe. And I mean, all white people, by the way, no black people or brown people are at all in this movie at all. Hmm. Um, And this, you know, at this time is where Gianni's uh, style influence would uh, would. this is where Gianni's style would influence the modern world. He would do shit like he would wear a watch on the outside of his shirt cuff, and people were like, man, that's fucking badass. He would be into the art of Balthus. Uh, he bought a Batman Warhol painting that he held close to his heart. But he'd also have a lot of these uh, garcinieres, which is uh, basically like you know a one-room apartment for your mistress, and he had them all over the place. The man knew how to keep secrets. Um they made the style of Italy matter. Uh, uh, Gianni was a vain individual, but he would do shit <laughs> that was kind of funny. Like, he'd call people at, like, 5.30 in the morning or, like, 6 a.m. He'd call someone, like, in France, and he'd just be, and they'd wake up and be like, hey, what, what the fuck's up, man? And he'd be like, is Paris amusing today? <laughs> the person would be like, I don't, I don't fucking know, man. One of the guys would tell a story about, like, he'd be like, hey, Look out your window. Is the sea good today? And he's like, dude, I'm so tired. Can I just go to sleep? He's like, look out that window. He's like, yep, the sea looks nice. And Gianni would be like, my captain's fucking lying to me. He's like, all right, cool. And then 20 minutes later, <laughs> Gianni would be outside this guy's door. Be like, hey, let's go sailing. Come on. It's it's 6 in the morning. You want to go sailing, right? Um, the man had... But just like, if you were a billionaire and you had a bunch of friends spending your money, that would be the best way to do it. Mm-hmm. Just be like so annoying and nobody's going to be like, shut the fuck up, dude. Because <laughs> it's like, no, I want to go on your yacht, you know, tomorrow. Right. If I, I mean, if I knew a billionaire who called me at like 3 a.m. and said, is Paris amusing today? I'd go into witness protection. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. He calls, calls his friend in Norway. He's like, Sven, get some rest. You look tired. Click. <laughs> He's not even there. <laughs> Calling my friend in Tokyo at 4 a.m. and being like, how are the anime mecha doing today? <laughs> are they powerful? <laughs> Have they combined? I mean, you know, I will say, though, that it I kind of understand the strategy. If you had, like, I mean, it's kind of like tweeting something at, like, 7 a.m. And then everyone awake at that time sees that tweet uh, before anything else com- comes out. Like, it's it's just about sticking in people's head. And to do that, you've got to be kind of annoying. Like, you have to be charming and all this this and that but really you just have to kind of remind people you exist constantly we're certainly seeing that in the modern day of social media where the more you post 
the more people know you exist, but then at the same time, the people that like you fucking say fuck your noise, you know? Uh, I think for, for most people on Twitter these days, when they post something like that at 7 a.m. with that in mind, it's usually with the um, mindset of uh, what which opinion can ruin the most people's day? <laughs> um, he would. There was another story that his chef told where the uh, president uh, or prime minister of Italy came to his house and Gianni's like, all right, let's figure out our menu. And the chef's like, okay, what do you want to serve? And he's like, let's serve him bull testicles. And the chef was like, I don't, you want to serve that guy that? And he's like, when people come over your house, they should be treated how they deserve to be treated. <laughs> so the man was petty. Um, when the Kennedys would throw these black tie events, the people that were first on, on the list were the and Johnny couple. This like at mid-Atlantic community that we know between, you know, New York, New England, London, Paris, that entire like air of aristocrat, aristocrat uh, nonsense was was these people were the kings and queens of that world um mm. but because of this they were terrible parents they weren't adults i mean gianni would literally do things where he would have lunch in paris and then he'd have dinner in london and then he'd fly back home to italy and you know friends would say that the worst part about being gianni's friend was that you had to go back to your life <laughs> And it screams of a person that isn't willing to deal with his emotions. Because as much as, you know, this man lived a life that is, you know, even to myself envious, at the same time, he just seemed so alone. And his kids were mostly raised by their um, babysitters and other people that they hired, whether it be from the Fiat company or, you know, there's one story of Margarita and... From the HBO documentary, it says that she shaved her head and her dad was like, what did you do? And she was like, at least you noticed. But then another article said that she shaved her head and her dad was like, if you're trying to get me to notice you, it's not working. Like, I mean, there's this conflict between this family and it's really sad because I think that Gianni, Gianni, when he lost his parents, had to stand on his own two feet in the worst ways but never grew out of the feeling that everything that you hold dear can be taken away from you. And that was only more solidified by his time in, at war. And so when he was told, hey, here's money, go go do whatever the fuck you want, he's like, I'm gonna. I'm gonna fucking live my life to a level that nobody has ever lived. Um, so later on in this documentary, in 1969, Gianni would buy Ferrari because Ford was interested in buying Ferrari when they were hitting bankruptcy. And Gianni said, right. fuck that. We're Italian. You know, Ferrari stays in Italy. Um, for a man that would side with the Allies, he was very into the idea that Italians stay Italian. <laughs> this uh, ethnocentric idea was certainly something that came into his life. Um, and by the late 70s, there would be protests all over Europe. Um, in watching some of the footage in the documentary, it honestly reminds me of how what we're dealing in the United States right now. Uh, the Fiat employees would come together to band together to be, uh, create a stronger union, and uh, Gianni would beat this by introducing inflation wages to the union. But by the early 70s, the Yom Kippur War would have a gas crisis, and so car sales were down 40% in Italy. And Fiat was bleeding the post-war, was bleeding money. And the post-war boom was over at this point. Um, 
so from the documentary, it would say that, you know, Gianni wouldn't, like, lay off people because he was like, Italy has to remain Italian. And so instead, he would then turn to the Libyans, specifically Gaddafi, and to sell 10% of fiat to them. In the HBO documentary, Kissinger disagreed with this move, and he told him so. So in... uh in Vanity Fair, Alan Friedman wrote an article called Capitalism Italian Style back in 1989, um, and it talks about Gianni, as well as, a y- at that time, young Berlusconi, Silvio Berlusconi. But the basic story with the Libyans is that in 1976, apparently he convinces Gaddafi to buy 15% of fiat at three times the market price, um, because, you know, these uh, various uh, Middle East and North African uh, rulers have all this oil money. So uh, he convinces Gaddafi to buy in in 76, but then by 1986, um, Gaddafi has all these tensions with Washington, D.C., and fiat is uh, uh, relies on Pentagon contracts for a lot of revenue. So they have to figure out a way to buy Gaddafi out so that, um, you know, Washington, D.C. will stop uh, breathing down their necks about it and that's kind of an interesting little story too yeah um from the documentary they would sell 10 percent of uh, fiat for 400 million dollars and although the the Gaddafi would have a role on the board it would only be in title like they technically wouldn't be able to do anything at fiat was how the relationship was structured in 1976 the communists were taking over, uh, two million members of Italians were controlling the unions, and it was looking as if Italy would become a communist nation during the Cold War. Uh, Gianni felt that if Italy were to commit to communism, that it would fall apart, akin to Cuba, and his allegiance to the United States made him so that he was worried. At this time, factories were being burnt down. Yeah. And the Agnellis... That, that's a real risk in, you know, Italy, which has had uh, 41 governments in 39 <laughs> years. It, it might fall apart if the communists take over. Sir. So so wait, what year again was it that the communists were on the rise? Uh, in 1976 is when uh, it was worrying Agnelli. I That is, and I'm not bullshitting you, the exact year that uh, P2 propaganda due um, yes. <laughs> was taken down. The uh, Masonic... Um, uh, conspiracy uh, connected to the Vatican and with possible CIA connections. Oh, really? Um, in Rome, yeah. Yeah, I, I absolutely believe this guy is plugged into U.S. intelligence, so, by the way. Oh, yeah. Um, that's fucking wild. So, yeah, so at this time, yeah. the general public in Italy looked at the Agnellis like the villains that they kind of are. They get to live a lavish lifestyle while the employees of Fiat had, you know, what would be considered um, by, you know, American factory workers as, like, good wages and good health benefits. But the unions were demanding that, hey, we're doing the work we want. We want more share. Um, The Red Brigade would uh, kneecap Fiat managers. They wanted to install a leftist alternative um, yeah, the Red Brigade was a leftist terrorist organization in, in Italy throughout the 70s and 80s. Right. Um, they would... A revolution was beginning. They would murder a magistrate from Rome. They shot a prison guard. They would firebomb cars. I mean, they were targeting the elites and attacking them. What you're saying is they were fucking cool. 
They, I mean, like, you know, they were terrifying. Um, Italy. Lee, Lee cool. <laughs> <laughs> the Red Brigade made it so that Italy became strong against the fiat executives. Uh, fiat was equivalent to the state, just like in the United States. You could look at Lockheed and all arm manufacturers as they are essentially the state. Um, Carlo was a director of logistics. He was also murdered at Fiat, and he was murdered by the Red Brigade. Uh, They thought that his role had a connection to the politics in Italy. Aldo Moro was kidnapped and then assassinated by the Red Brigade. Um, And during this time, Gianni would stay in Italy and, and outsmart the Red Brigade by driving fancy and, like, you know, a whole bunch of fucking Gianni propaganda so, where he had a Fiat, but he put a Ferrari engine in it, and he would outdrive his own security, you know, like a whole bunch of, like, James Bond type of shit, you know? So mm. Fiat would then fire 60 people based off of terrorist activities, and this would cause some massive strikes. And I'm pretty sure that those 60 employees were probably ones in, uh, responsible for the labor union activity. And... In 1980, 40,000 people were in the streets protesting the right to work. And this seems also very propaganda-heavy. Sean, you had a bit more on this, too? Right. Well, I mean, depending on your interpretation, the last, <laughs> the last like, major strike at uh, Fiat was in 1980, where apparently Gianni got 40,000 scabs uh, to fill all these um, jobs uh, from trade union members that had walked off. Right. And a lot of people cite this as kind of the moment that really broke the back of Italian trade unions. Mm-hmm. Um, from the t- documentary perspective, after this, the 80s were awesome. <laughs> Fiat after this just <laughs> kept kicking ass. <laughs> like, it literally does, like, a montage of, like, cool cars that were uh, produced by Fiat at that time. Um so as the 80s began, they were Italy got back on track on, in the direction of American imperialism, and they would pay off the money that Gaddafi paid him for 10% of the fiat board. Sean? Well, yeah, so the Gaddafi story is pretty interesting. Again, this uh, Alan Friedman article in, uh, in Vanity Fair. But basically, like we were mentioning, you know, they have these Pentagon contracts. They want to get Gaddafi out. So according to the article, um, the Libyans were demanding eight times what they bought this for, what they bought mm-hmm. the fiat stock for to, to buy them out and make them go away. Um, so apparently uh, the stock price the stock price didn't support that at the time. This is 1986. But what happened was they managed to get this deal with the Libyans, and in the days preceding the closing of the deal, fiat stock starts sh- soaring mysteriously and hits record historic levels right before they close the deal so that they are able to buy the uh, the Libyans out at eight times of the money they put in. Apparently, uh, Gaddafi walked away with $3.1 billion in cash in 1986 because of this deal. Um, and uh, according to the Vanity Fair article, um, uh, an aide to Gianni later admitted that one of his companies had been buying up fiat stock to keep the share under control during the negotiations. In fact, his company accounted for nearly a fifth of all trading in fiat common stock at the time. <laughs> so he had his own little company buying up the stock in order to drive up the stock price uh, so that it could pay the Libyans off. But not only that, um, we didn't mention this up to the time, but we should kind of mention here now, or up to now, we should mention that Mediobanca mm-hmm. was an Italian state industry bank set up after World War II. And, you know, of course, Japan had uh, similar things, but these are 
kind of state banks, uh, nominally the people who work for them are state employees uh, that are supposed to support industry in these countries. But the head of Mediobanca uh, became a close friend of Guiani um, and basically in many different ways supported him throughout the 60s, 70s, and 80s. At this time, uh, Enrico Cuccio, the head of Mediobanca, basically looked at Gianni and was like, hey man, listen, you don't know how your books work, and I know you don't, so you're going to hire Romiti, this guy of mine, and put him on the fiat board, and he's going to fucking run your books solid. I personally think that Enrico Cuccio was linked to the organized crime units of Italy, and that Medio Banco was kind of used as a money laundering unit. Uh, I don't have anything to prove this, but just look at a photo of Enrico Cuccio and tell me that that man is not connected to crime. Um, Do physiology, physiognomy on him and tell me if you see mafia associations. So in the late 80s, early 90s, go on, John. But yeah, uh, Cuccio, the Mediobanca guy, basically, not only that, not only did they drive up the shares, but... Um, Gianni used this opportunity to, to buy back control, family control of Fiat from, at this time, 33% to 40%. And they do this because Cuccio, again, the head of this state bank, Mediobanca, he sets up a financial structure that, quote, that allows um, Guiana to effectively borrow the money from Fiat shareholders at ridiculously low rates. Um, the most controversial part of the transaction was a 10-year, $1.1 billion loan from Mediobanca to an Ignani company at an interest rate of 2.6%, equal to less than a fourth of the prime rate that other Italian companies would have had to pay uh, for borrowing far smaller amounts. So basically, and the, the minority shareholders in Fiat were left holding the bag. Hmm. So basically, he didn't have enough cash to buy out, uh, to up his stake, but the state bank gives him $1.1 billion at a fourth of the typical interest rate, and then he also borrows from fiat shareholders and leaves them, you know, completely holding the bag for this deal. At, at this point, Gianni would want to choose his successor. So at first he chooses Umberto Anjani, his younger brother, and he lets the press and people know that Umberto's the guy. He's going to take over when I'm gone. But Romiti and Mito Banco were like, uh-uh, son, fuck that noise. And Enrico Cuccio used uh, fiat leaking cash to implement his will and not let Gianni's younger brother, Umberto, become the successor. Uh, five years later, Gianni convinced Romiti to retire. And when they had to find a new successor, they wouldn't even look at Eduardo, Gianni's son, because of the fact that he was addicted to heroin after his time in Princeton and... I don't know nearly much about the converting for Islam being a part of it, but it's certainly it's certainly suspect. And from the documentary, Gianni would get into an argument with his son, and three days later, Eduardo would jump off a high point and commit suicide. So instead, Gianni thought, I'm going to let my nephew Giovannino take over the company when I'm dead. But then he would get diagnosed with cancer and die a year later. Um, Umberto would then have to bury his his son then. So then instead, John Elkin, Gianni's grandson from, or grandnephew, I guess. No, his grandson. Margarita's son would then be given the appointment to be the board of Fiat. So John at the age of, so John Elkin was then given the appointment to be the board at Fiat. He was given the golden key, keys. Uh, his, you know, Gianni's kids kind of got shafted. 
but Eduardo would kill himself, and uh, it was it was quite tragic. Uh, John's younger brother Lapo, when he was seventeen, his grandfather was a come to Turin <laughs> to yeah, his name's Lapo. Uh, <laughs> he would he would work briefly. In he the uh, he tragically killed himself by running into a goomba without <laughs> having eaten a mushroom first. <laughs> He I thought he died in a tragic slide whistle accident. <laughs> um, this guy, he's the guy that uh, was on drugs as well and then is in a sex scandal as well as he... Lapo kidnapped himself to try and get the ransom money from his own family. That uh, is such a Lapo move. <laughs> <laughs> but the reason I want to mention this is because he would spend a year interning for Henry Kissinger... <laughs> <laughs> who was a close friend of his grandfather. So Giovanni would die, and his daughter would then be confused as to why the will and living testament of Giovanni was as fractured as it was, so she would then decide to sue and try and find out more about it. Her own kids and her own mom would be like, fuck you, Margarita, you're being ungrateful about this shit. And she'd be like, fuck that noise, I just want to know how much mo- money we got, basically. So this is a conversation between uh, Henry Kissinger and Lapo. I uh, I always like to tell the young men that uh, power is the greatest aphrodisiac. <laughs> also, I um, orchestrated the uh, genocide in East Timor. <laughs> so the Agnelli nice. family now has become fractured because of Gianni's daughter, Marguerite, not knowing why the family wealth is disclosed as poorly as it is. She's filed a lawsuit against three of the individuals that helped Gianni at Fiat themselves, as well as her own kids and her mom to find out, hey, how much money do we got? And are we all getting a fair share of this? And, you know, similar to the family we covered recently, uh, the Pritzkers, Around 2000, fucking, the family says, fuck this noise, I want my money. And it's kind of sad, because none of these people got this money, and the three children that have the most claim to the air currently are designing sunglasses. Uh, you know, one of them's running Exor, the other one's a director, and is, you know, given, you know, doing art tours at their family museum. But for the most part, the Gianni Agnelli legacy is that this man probably fucked jackie kennedy (laughs) (laughs) i did want to follow up what the one last thing about the Gaddafi is according to that vanity fair profile the first person he called uh gianni the first person he called after he got Gaddafi out of the company he called then vice president george bush george hw bush who were they they were apparently close friends and i just want to say that's very strange to uh call the man who murdered the president you were cucking (laughs) <laughs> wow. Yeah, but of course, uh, George H.W. Bush was a CIA head, so uh, if you want to kind of follow the rabbit hole of all those Bilderberg Group connections, Henry Kissinger connections, maybe maybe that would be a productive use of your time. I also tried to fuck Jackie Kennedy. She told me if I wanted to get some <laughs> pussy, I could go fuck myself. <laughs> <laughs> You know, um, in a in the story covering Eduardo's uh, funeral, I found that at one point Margarita and her brother Eduardo would like be kind to one another. They were siblings. They were raised in the same hell, and he would tell her that she was naive. 
he would say she didn't understand the political dynamics of the company that she would believe what people told her. And hmm. you know what? I think Eduardo knew the true connections of the Anyani empire and how it was just rooted in, in ruthless, uh, this is our money, fuck you, pay me, uh, dynamics. And although I think that um, the man certainly got to live a life where he just got to drive fast cars and fuck loose women and just be on drugs and weed, that tw- 10 to 20 year period of his life certainly made the publicity of fiat in the European sector solidified. Because, like, you know, hmm. you find out that, like, hey, man, what car are you driving? Oh, I'm driving the car that's run by a company that fucked Jackie Kennedy. Come on. How are you going to beat that advertising? You know what I mean? Well, yeah, I, I think it was that and also just heavy state support. Like, another thing I learned from the Vanity Fair profile was at the time in the uh, the 80s, there were no insider trading laws in Italy. Mm-hmm. And, like, the most revealing thing from the profile, again, it was r- the it was written in 1989. As of that time, Gianni Ignani's uh, family, his holdings ga- gave him control of a quarter, 25% of the Italian stock exchange. That, at that time, around 25 billion U.S. dollars worth wow. of capital. Uh, it's since gone down a bit with, you know, the introduction of uh, Europe-EU competition and such. But uh, at the time, he was also the proprietor of two of three of Italy's leading magazine, uh, leading newspapers, 22 magazines. He controls. He controlled in 19... 19- in 1989, he controlled 99% of Italian car productions and 60% of Italian car sales. And the, the piece kind of goes through how, at this time, in Italian capitalism, it, you could, it was kind of an old boy network where you would just work with these other 5 to 10% shareholders, and effectively everything would be governed by this cartel of capitalists who ran Italy um, up until you know the turn of the century yeah and you know for a family that is as uh regarded in terms of legacy and they really kind of you know anytime i've looked at things and it's like oh it's got italian leather they're pointing back to these you know supposed style icons that defined what you know style was in that time period gianni if you ask me was like the softest tough guy in the world in that like he could fight but also he was just like a nice guy that liked to fucking do drugs <laughs> he's the pete hmm. davidson of his own generation is what i'm trying to say <laughs> right but yeah it, it is just like going all the way back to of course you know uh world war one and then mussolini and then the allies and then the state bank like he couldn't really have fucked it up. Like, he no. literally went around and partied for 20 years, and he only got richer in that time. Yeah. And by the 80s, that was the height of his power. Definitely. I mean, if you told me, Yogi, you have to party for 20 years, and then after that you'll get a business empire, I don't know if I could really pull it off. Like, sure. <laughs> like, mentally, I'm like, I could fucking party for 20 years, but I don't know if my heart could take it. Would I be willing to jump out of a helicopter into the Mediterranean Sea every morning? Just to prove that I, I fucking I'm awesome, probably not. I do just want to say he was voted one of the top five, according to his Wikipedia. He was voted one of the top five best dressed men of all time, mm-hmm. and uh, I would just like to say, please ignore the fact that he owns twenty two magazines for the source <laughs> of that particular poll. The man was quirky. He would do things where, like, he would have his tie with the back half being tucked in his pants. I mean, you know, Sean. Illuminati signaling. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So yeah. they identify one another. Exactly. 
For some reason, he only wears that style on the date of John F. Kennedy's assassination, <laughs> but he does it every year. And also for a man that's like uh, fucked his way through Europe, the fact that there has been you know zero cases of women being like, yeah, I do want to fuck that guy, and he came on to me and fucked me is is baffling. Uh, just mm. impossible. Well, it's the mafia connections, honestly. Yeah, you went wrong about that. All right, and with that, this has been Grub Stickers. I'm Yogi Polywall. I'm Andy Palmer. I'm Sean P. McCarthy. I'm Steve Jeffers. Thank you so much. Have a wonderful evening.